You're listening to Augmented Humanity. Our guests are modern explorers working at the intersection of technology and the humanities. They help us to understand ourselves in the worlds we create in this digital age. They are thinkers, creators, makers, and academics working in diverse fields like geography, the visual arts, performing arts, storytelling, and literature. I'm your host, Craig Goldsmith. I'm your host, Ellen Dordan. On this program, we're joined by the co-editors of Reviews in Digital Humanities, Dr. Rupika Rissam and Dr. Jennifer Giuliano. Dr. Rissam is the Chair of Secondary and Higher Education and Associate Professor of Education and English at Salem State University. Dr. Giuliano is an Associate Professor of History, Native American and Indigenous Studies, and American Studies at Indianapolis University. Rupika, Jennifer, thank you so much for being with us today. Before we get into some of the nuts and bolts of what you all are doing and how you do it, I did want to ask uh, each of you, how did each of you end up becoming a digital humanist? And I don't mean like philosophically, I mean more like, you know, what's your background? I don't think that when you were in high school, you said, I think I'm going to be a digital humanist, or maybe you did. So what was the path that brought you each to this place? Well, first, it helps to have an internet addiction. I keep joking. I turned an internet addiction into an actual career. When I did my master's in English at Georgetown, I was a graduate assistant in the Center for New Designs and Learning and Scholarship. And this was before the word digital humanities was a thing. And we were doing all kinds of support for faculty who wanted to try out new things like using a wiki with your teaching or digital storytelling. And we were working on this app on this software for Digital Dante. Now I think there's about 50 projects called Digital Dante. None of them are this project from Georgetown. It's the seven circles of hell. (laughs) (laughs) Had to be in the promo video. It was hilarious. So, you know, I was doing all this work and then I went to do my PhD at Emory University where I was working on post-colonial and African diaspora, supposedly literature, but I was never really good at doing what I was supposed to do. It was more like intellectual history, but the post-colonialist was in the English department. So that's why I was there. And routinely my cohort would ask, why are you in an English program? And I would say, I don't know. (laughs) So... I was writing a dissertation on the way that black radical thought has traveled throughout the post-colonial world and the sort of borrowings back and forth. And I was doing research in the Huey Newton papers at Stanford, and I came across the rolls of the Black Panther newspaper, and there were all these addresses, all these locations. And what I immediately noticed about it was that there were people subscribing to the paper in places like Finland that you really wouldn't have expected, right? Something about looking at that list of locations made me think, I'm really struggling with how to represent these intellectual, multi-directional flows of knowledge. So maybe I should just start charting it out, or maybe I should put it on a map. And that's when I sort of started looking into who else had done things like that. And then it turns out the term digital humanities had recently come into existence, and there was this name for this thing as a body of work. And so at the time, Emory had fellowships with Haystack, the Humanities, Arts, Sciences, Technology, Advanced Collaboratory. I applied to be a Haystack scholar and you got something like $300 and you had to write blog posts for Haystack on digital humanities. (laughs) You could do a project and you had a project mentor. And while my 
my project mentor flaked on me and that was sort of the end of that but that was how I got into digital humanities because suddenly it was an answer to a problem that I was struggling with the work I did with that was really just a heuristic for me to think through how to actually write the dissertation but that became my point of entry into actually using visualizations as a method of research and what about you, Jennifer? How did you end up as a digital humanist? I mean, I'm a nerd. That helps. <laughs> I grew up doing robotics and computing. I grew up near Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio and was lucky enough to be part of enrichment programs through Wright State University and the labs at Wright-Pat. So I grew up building hardware desktops and working with friends who worked for what was in the late 80s and early 90s internet service providers with dial-up. So I actually started Digital Humanities with building servers and desktops. And when I went to college at Miami University in Ohio, I was lucky enough to be hired to work in the university archives and then at the Holmes McGuffey Museum and was doing basically library and archives work. So digitization and cataloging and things like that. And so I took those two skills and went to graduate school at Illinois. And my second or third year there, they said, we're all out of money to support you. Go find a job on campus. And my answer was, I went and started working for projects and departments building their websites and building their server architecture and their support that they needed and got hired on at what was the Illinois Institute for Computing and Arts and Humanities. It's the only digital humanities center at a supercomputing facility in the United States. And they hired me on because I knew how to write. Literally in my second week there, they were like, hey, would you like to write a grant for $300,000? go have a nice time and come back to us. And I found I had an unusual skill set, which is the ability to take technical language from other people and make it sound like something someone would want to spend money on. So a lot of my digital humanities origin is less figuring out my own project than it is figuring out how to make other people's projects go. So I am a steamroller, as Rupsi will tell you. And so I did a lot of project management in digital humanities, and that was sort of my route being fascinated with the notion of how do you take somebody's idea and turn it into a reality, even if that reality is something you don't really truly understand yourself. So let me ask, I mean, you both sort of had these idiosyncratic paths to doing what you're doing now, but now you're the grown-ups in the room. And so can you just tell us a little bit about some of the things that you're doing, like the Digital Ethnic Futures Consortium and your book that are making it a little bit easier for the next generation of scholars, but also, I guess, for the teachers. And this is what I hear in New Mexico, because we don't have any formal digital humanities programs. So what I hear is the teachers say, what can we do? Because our students want to learn this, and they feel like this is how they're going to get the jobs of the future, but we don't know how to teach it. I think one thing that Jen and I have in common is we like to give money to other people. I think we both really enjoy that. But really, to create space for people to enter into the conversation and to collaborate who maybe haven't had a place for it before. And that was the impetus behind the Digital Ethnic Futures Consortium, which is funded by a $3 million grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. I was talking to one of the program officers, Maria Ciceri, and we were just sort of brainstorming about what would we need to do to be able to expand ethnic studies and digital humanities and community-based research. And so I said, you know, I think what would be fun is if we think about having some consortial partners 
at universities where we invest in building up their infrastructure for digital humanities. And then also try and build a community among other practitioners and give out some money to people who maybe haven't done digital humanities with ethnic studies before, but are willing to give it a try and we'll give them some mentors to do it as well. And then uh, we actually just yesterday announced the results of our first re-grant program, which gave $2,500 to faculty at, I believe, 30 universities to develop coursework in digital humanities. So will that all be available publicly? DigitalEthnicFutures.org has all the information, how to join us. Joining us is free. You can attend our speaker series. Jen will be our first speaker if she ever sends me her information. (laughs) And we have a virtual annual meeting, which is to bring people together virtually. We're trying to build up that community. Just a jargon question, because you both have used this phrase a few times during our segments today. PI. When you say PI, you don't mean a private investigator, I presume. Principal investigator. The person in charge. (laughs) Jennifer, will you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing to make things easier for future generations of people who are enthusiastically tackling digital humanities projects? I run an international-based, U.S.-based training institute called HILT. So if you go to dhtraining.org, during non-COVID times, it runs every summer. We bring in about 120, 150 people, including instructors, and they teach different classes on different topics and technologies and methods and approaches. And from Hilt, I have a book forthcoming with Duke University Press called 10 Principles for Teaching Digital History. And it's basically a how-to, like how to build your first digital history curriculum, how to build your first class. It has all kinds of examples of different exercises you can do, technologies you can use, approaches you can take. And it highlights some really incredible work that's happening, not just here in the United States, but around the globe. Everything from high school and middle school all the way up to college students. I'm pretty excited about the book. I think it comes with the same problem that Digital Ethnic Futures does, which is trying to enable people and make them feel empowered to try something. Even if it doesn't end up working, they're at least trying something. And in Rupsi's case, she gets to give them buckets of money. In my case, I get to ask you to spend $21 on a book. But it does come with really great resources, including glossaries and indices and access to curriculum and syllabi from all of the great instructors who let me feature their project. Should be good. It'll be out in May 2022, assuming there are no production delays due to paper shortages. I've read it. She has read it. It's really good. Oh, thanks. I said on Twitter after an exchange that involved Jen, you need one friend who says, oh my gosh, that's amazing. You're so brilliant. And you need another friend who says, have you considered? Jen is my have you considered. And it just makes my work so much better. It's amazing. One of the things that works really well with reviews is that although Rupsi and I are very united in our vision for the journal, we both have incredibly different skill sets and different approaches to things. You know, when I talk to people about getting projects started or how do you start in digital humanities, it's this kind of stuff, like trying it out with a friend, sitting down for a coffee and saying, show me how you did this or that. And having somebody who says that's brilliant and having somebody who says, here's 18 things to go read, (laughs) come back and we'll talk about it. And having both cheerleaders and critique. I think that's one of the interesting things, right, is that a lot of times we talk about producing lots of knowledge, but we don't really talk about the feedback mechanism. What happens if you go to the museum and somebody hates your exhibit? Or what happens, 
you know, if you disagree with the tour guide on a tour, like how do you actually engage in a way that's constructive? And I think that's one of the things we've worked really hard on is trying to be constructive, even if we don't necessarily like what we're seeing. And we were just talking about this last night. When we think about peer review as a concept, and when we think about the critical kindness that we want to cultivate in the journal, it's really the difference of a tiny shift of language from saying this project suffers from to saying this project could be enhanced by just the flipping of the negative into a different place in the sentence is the difference between erring on the side of sounding extremely critical and here's an area of growth. Let me ask you, because I guess I've always thought peer review sounded like a very abusive process, but some of the approaches that you all practice when you're doing your work, inclusivity, the transparency, the engagement that you do, do you have any sense of there being sort of a culture shift being pushed from DH practitioners? They have to work with computer scientists or people outside of their immediate fields. They have to work with English teachers. What I hear from outside academe sounds sometimes like a very toxic top-down culture. Do you feel like there are some cultural shifts coming out of DH that could benefit other academic fields or practitioners? I think in the last five or six years, there has been some movement towards more positive review culture. And I think some of that is about the diversity of people who are participating in it, demanding a constructive environment, right? Like not writing reviews that are wholly negative. But it's also, I think, people are being more honest about what the consequences of being part of a negative process are for them. When my first book came out, and I love my book, but it unfortunately was picked up by a very problematic person who wrote about it in the popular press and basically didn't even review the book. It was all about why it was a problem that I was saying Native mascots should not be utilized. And that review really was a problem for me because it didn't engage with my book at all. So I basically had to spend an immense amount of time explaining to other people why this reviewer did what she did and chose to review the way she did, rather than her saying, I have a quibble with this person, and this is my quibble, but here's the things in the book that I found valuable. Rupsi and I have both been in environments where people use our scholarship for their own purposes rather than talk about the claims we're making and how we're making them. And that's something that we've seen in the humanities more broadly, right? We see scholarship get picked up and used for reasons and rationales that were never intended. Where we're seeing a bit of shift is a new wave of scholars saying, I'm not going to participate in a negative culture I'm not going to participate in closed review processes where anonymity means people can be mean to each other. And Digital Humanities has been at the forefront of moving towards open peer review for journals and conferences. And I think that's helping show people that there can be critique, but that it doesn't have to be mean. That's a really positive way to end the program. I feel like I'm a Hallmark story today. What is this about? <laughs> Who is she? I know. Like, what in the world happened to me overnight? Rupika, Jennifer, thank you so much for being with us today and being so generous with your time and your expertise. Thank you for having us. This was great. This was lovely.
And if you would like more information about our guests, you can visit their respective websites. That's rupikarissam.com, R-O-O-P-I-K-A-R-I-S-A-M.com, or jgiuliano.com, that's J-G. U-I-L-I-A-N-O.com. And if you want to look at uh, Reviews in Digital Humanities, you can see those publications online at reviewsindh.hubhub.org. Augmented Humanity is a program of the New Mexico Humanities Council, produced in partnership with KUNM-FM. You can visit us online and find out more about our programs at nmhumanities.org. Our theme music comes courtesy James Whiten, and we've had production assistance from Tristan Klum.